Hi, this is Bob Burdinsky. Here's an annual giving interview. Stephanie Rasamni is the founder and president of Mainspring Media Communications, uh, one of the first web-based fundraising companies I was ever aware of. Twelve years ago, uh, the annual giving marketplace consisted of telephone fundraising companies and direct mail fundraising companies. Stephanie was something different. And this was several years before Barack Obama's uh, revolutionary first online fundraising campaign. While working for a company that was producing corporate training videos on CD-ROM, Stephanie's boss got a call from Duke University. Uh, he's a proud Duke grad, as is Stephanie, as is every other Duke grad. It's almost redundant to say proud Duke grad. But I digress. Duke asked her company if they could produce what at the time was sort of a newfangled thing, a fundraising video appeal that could be emailed to Duke grads. The company produced the video, and Stephanie produced a new company. She left the firm and started Mainspring Media Communications. And for more than a decade, she's been on the front lines uh, of the growth of online annual giving. We sat down by phone to talk about the changes she's seen in the past 10 years and what she thinks is still to come. Technology is constantly changing, changing so rapidly, and that what we're able to do is stay on top of it, um, you know, sort of track the changes, test out new things, and then it brings the fundraisers what we think is going to make the most sense for them. I think it's easy for the annual funds and the, you know, the development officers to, to get overwhelmed by it, but what we have had a lot of fun doing is building tools, is trying out new things, and it all boils down to the same thing it, 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 did, it did back with those with those flash video pieces, it's all about the user interaction and the, you know, the user interaction with the campaigns. And so what we found is that that linear format, that you know, one and a half, one minute, one and a half minute flash video was great at the time. And it was, it was new and it was exciting and it was emotional, certainly nostalgic for some institutions and it was effective at the time, but technology has changed so much that now it's more about how do you drive the user experience and make it innovative and engaging for them and for every person that's a little bit different. We started to develop a wide range of tools would allow us to engage a lot of different types of donors or constituents. People are on their mobile device and they might be they might have two minutes in between meetings to check something on their droid or on their iPhone and so what they're going to look at in those two minutes is going to be different than someone who's at their desk and checking an email or over the weekend on a Sunday afternoon flipping through email and clicking on websites and checking out things. So so the tools that we develop, email campaigns with some more simple animation in the email itself to websites that have various different ways that you can interact, survey campaigns or websites with a video and, and everything in between. And it's all, from our perspective, what is the goal with the campaign and then how do we build a user experience that allows the constituent, the donor, to get the information we want to communicate but in the way that they want to see it. And so that requires a lot of different types of tools, social media being a part of that as well. So I asked Stephanie what she thought about the blitz appeals that are becoming so commonplace these days. Some are attracting thousands of donors and millions of dollars uh, in just a matter of hours. She suggests that this is the evolution of some themes we've been playing with for a long time. I think that it's an exciting tool to use. Uh, and 
an exciting, exciting type of campaign. If I can take a step back, I think that we've we've always done a variation of this. I mean, we've always tried to, if we look at the annual fund calendar, we've always tried to create some urgency um, in giving and use deadlines to do that, right? So if it's the end of calendar year for tax purposes or the end of fiscal year, um, I think what, 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 you know, we often talk about is that the end of fiscal year doesn't mean anything to most of your constituents. You know, your, your solid, staunch donors and, you know, your live ones, they, they know what that means and they might have that date in mind, but not everyone else really does. And so, you know, we've always been, we've always kind of created campaigns, whether they, you know, match and gift campaigns that might span over a month's time or a two months' time or um, something that might back up to the end of a fiscal year. But we've always kind of tried to in, implement some artificial deadlines to create urgency and get, and and to boost giving. What's really exciting now are these 24 and 48 hour challenges. And I think two years ago, drawn out over four weeks or six weeks or even you know two months, now we can do in 24, 48 hours because of social media, because people are checking the email on their phones all the time. Now we have an opportunity to kind of take, to, to build a lot of urgency and a lot of excitement and switch it into 24 or 48 hours. And, and we've seen them be really, be very effective and, and they're fun to do. One of the great things about it, I mean, and we always rec- recommend to do is think about, okay, let's just look at your entire calendar. Is there a time? Is there a day? Is there a, an event? Is there something that happens on campus that we can time our 24 or 48 hours around to make it even more engaging to alums. Like, oh gosh, I remember for UC Davis it might be picnic day, or I remember, you know, that day on campus, maybe it's homecoming or founders day or something like that. And do and pick your 24, 48 hours to run around that time. Have it set an artificial, set that deadline as your deadline, but it really is an artificial deadline. And then it might be something that you can continue to do on an annual basis. Because I think that these challenges are really exciting. They can be really successful. But the challenge is to think about, I mean, it has to be very strategically planned out. All of the build-up to the challenge via email, social media, web, what are you doing? At all, it, it, even in some of your direct mail, can, what's happening on the phone at, at leading up to the challenge, and can you tease about the challenge through the phone as well? Like, what's your build-up plan? What's the plan during that 24, 48 hours? Because it, it's going to be intense. You talk to any school that's done one, and they'll tell you, I mean, we were we were at the office for 12, 14 hours that day. It's got to be, you know, it, it's, an, it's going to be an intense strategy and, and a plan for that time frame to be posting hourly, to be emailing, you know, every two hours. It, it, you know, the, the communication has to be in real time. And then what's your strategy after the challenge? And this is, I think, where it's critical to be to spend time and resources on what's your post-challenge strategy and analysis and how many people gave that for the first time during that challenge. How are you going to steward them? Of the remaining group, you know, that are live on some side on some lapsed folks, you know, how are you going to steward them? And then what's the plan moving forward then into the next year? Because I think these challenges are something that can stick around as long as the strategy leading up to them during the challenge and after the challenge is is sufficient. The difficult thing about the web is that there's an expectation um, that the data that you get on the web is in real time. These challenges are really great because they are getting that real-time feedback. But then if everything, if whatever happens,
happens from the time the challenge ends to the end of your fiscal year goes back to status quo, then I think there's a little bit of a letdown there. I think they're a great idea. I think it is definitely something that can be an effective way to drive giving, to cultivate new donors, but I do think that you need to be invested in a true pre-post-challenge strategy that's going to allow you to retain those donors going forward. I told Stephanie I thought we were at a moment of a volunteer renaissance uh, in annual giving. Um, now that people didn't have to come to meetings and could support us while they sat on their sofa, what was a tiresome idea of recruiting a bunch of volunteers all of a sudden was a lot more user-friendly. Uh, she agreed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's terrific. I mean, the question shouldn't be what you want your volunteers to do. And it should be more about how can you design a program so that people will want, to, people can easily volunteer, right? They can raise their hand and they can participate in a way that makes sense to them. Uh, me personally, I'm a working mom. I have three kids. I'm probably not going to be able to, um, you know, sign up for, uh, to volunteer for Duke in a capacity that would require a lot of meetings or travel to, to Durham. But can I do things from Facebook? Can I do things from, you know, from via email? Can I engage, whether it be my classmates or, you know, for a reunion or do something for the annual fund electronically from where I am? Absolutely. I definitely can. And, and do I think that can be just as effective? Absolutely. So I think it is really exciting. Um, we recommend and, and we tell clients, I mean, for every email series that we're going to build, what's our plan? How can we get your donors and some of your active volunteers to be advocates for you on social media? And we couldn't have done this five years ago. It wouldn't have been nearly as effective. So uh, I, I agree with you. I think it's really exciting. I know there's another uh, school you've worked with, UC Davis, uh, along these lines of engaging volunteers. And this is an, uh, it looks like an email message that went out, uh, I'm guessing, to people who already made a gift. And there's that share button to tell your friends on Facebook or Twitter or wherever that, um, that they should join you in making a gift to UC Davis. And I think that dovetails with what you're talking about with the use of volunteers, that I think we're getting to a point where we're going to become increasingly dissatisfied uh, with donors who just make a gift. <laughs> and you know, by that I mean I, th I think we're going to be more and more persistent inviting them to be an example in addition to uh, making a gift. And so, would you talk a little bit about the UC Davis example and you know, leveraging somebody who obviously cares enough about the institution to make a gift, but also really trying to nudge them to be an ambassador or, a, you know, an example to their peers? I think, um, yeah, you know, with, with this campaign and, and really with, with, with all of your campaigns to existing donors, um, you know, I think it's important, as you said, to ask donors to take that next step and be an advocate for your organization. It's really exciting now that it's become very trendy to brag, for lack of a better word, you know, I support XYZ cause, I hope you'll join me, um, uh, and it's really easy to do that on Facebook, it's easy to tweet about it, and so I think that we have an opportunity in higher ed to leverage that. We should be asking donors to tell their friends on, you know, whether it be Facebook or Twitter or their social media 
be a venue of choice, but we should be asking them to share that they've given because I guarantee that a group of their friends um, on Facebook are going to be classmates. There's a real opportunity there, I think, to do that. And we've done that in a number of campaigns that UC Davis won as an example. Um, we've also taken it sort of to the next level and asked in, in a campaign for the Freeman School business at Tulane, we created links to a campaign and we asked them to post the link to their Facebook page and just say, I, you know, I give to Freeman and this is a really exciting time at the university and the business school and I hope you'll consider making your gift and post a link to, to the campaign that we created. And what we were able to do is track hits to that link. And we tracked over 300 clicks to the email and from those links and um, from their clicks to the giving button. So I do think there's a real opportunity for institutions to ask their donors to take take the next step. And it doesn't need to be take the next step and give again. It can be, can in, in the same fiscal year, it can be, you know, can you be an advocate for us? Do you believe in us enough to make a gift? Can you tell people about it? And it's so easy over, you know, it's so convenient to help in this way. To your point earlier, it's so easy for a donor to post to their Facebook page that, that they give um, and to ask friends to join them. Easy for a donor to, to like your the microsite or to like the challenge site that you've put up and to share it with all of with all of their Facebook friends or to tweet about it. It's such an easy thing for them to do and I think it's something that, that if for me personally as a donor, something I derive satisfaction out of too. So it, it, I think it's a win-win for the institution, for the donor. It's a great way to keep them engaged. Um, and then after, let's say you are asking them to to share a campaign with their Facebook friends or to like your challenge page and like the challenge, your 24-hour challenge. After the campaign, you have an opportunity to say to them, you helped us achieve these results. And you were a part of that, and thank you. You know, and I think the thank you part is a, a big piece of it. I think you can definitely ask them to do some of this posting and sharing with friends, but then the, the stewardship piece of that is really important. It's ironic to me that you see other not-for-profit organizations that are doing very smart things in plugging into the social networks of their donors. You know, friends who have no connection to the charity um, other than my friend gives to them. And in education, I think we're in so much a better potential position since a lot of my donors' friends probably also went to Duke or wherever. And so it just seems like we have the power to leverage that much more effectively than your typical not-for-profit. And yet I see a lot of charities that are really running circles around a lot of what we do in education, at least at the moment. We hear a, a lot of pushback against posting any type of solicitation or message about giving to Facebook. We hear a lot of pushback. It's going to turn people off, and I really strongly feel that that's not the case. There's pushback not only to post to the institution's Facebook page. Sometimes clients say, it's a lot for me to ask donors to post to their own Facebook page, and I really strongly tell them, yes, absolutely. I don't think there's any harm in asking them because chances are a large percentage of their Facebook friends have that common link, whether it's a K-12 school, whether it's a college, whether it's a graduate institution. I mean, you, you derive a lot of your um, connections that way. And so I, I do think, I, I agree with you, I think we have an opportunity in higher ed to 
leverage social media that we're not using it to its full potential. And I think that we should definitely be doing more of asking our donors to be advocates on social media. I saw you uh, last week at the Northeast Annual Giving Conference where um, I was one of the talks. And I, I was as pushy as I've ever been, I think, in telling people that they need to be more mobile-friendly in terms of thinking about their strategies and their appeals and things. Um, you're much more on the front lines with this than I am. But uh, what's your perspective on the urgency of that? And does that open up any opportunities even for ways that we can do fundraising that we haven't thought about before now? I think that mobile-friendly implies optional. And in my mind, everything that you do online right now should be viewable and usable on a mobile device. So everything should be mobile responsive. Every email you build, every website you, you know, web page around the challenge, every video you put out, all of it should be designed with a mobile device in mind. That's not to say that it's all going to be tiny so when you look at it on a desktop it's not going to look good, but that's to say that mobile responsiveness and the programming around that should be a part of everything you do. So your emails can be a little bit respons- can be responsive to a mobile device. Your websites can certainly can be responsive. Um, because what we're seeing, you know, we're tracking you know, all of the email campaigns we're sending and the, and the websites that we're tracking for email campaigns, 50 to 60% on average are opening emails from a mobile device. I mean, it used to be three years ago, that number was, was typically around 30%. It was like a third. Now, if, if it's below 50%, I mean, if it's not, you know, 49, 48, 49, 50, or plus percent of people opening emails from a mobile device, it's, it's really an outlier. Um, so everyone is looking at your campaigns from a mobile device, and it's, you know, it's uh, the large percent. Apple has a large share of that. You know, iPhones, iPads are a large share of that, and but so are Android devices. And, and the great thing about them is that these devices have really taken huge leaps and bounds. So things are, are going to look good. I mean, you, you're not having to program. I feel like people have this fear that there are so many different devices and, and how can we make sure it's going to look good across all of them. Um, you know, the great news is that the devices have really come a long way. And so, you know, and, and so has the programming around mobile responsive design. And so, and so that... That should not be a concern. The question should really be, you know, okay, how how is the campaign, how are we going to design this campaign, and what's the strategy going to be to make this campaign um, work for a mobile user? Um, and and I think that's not only in just in just the design of it, and you know, the, the layout, but it's also you know, in the coding, but it's also the timing of campaigns and the um, frequency of them and um, and the combination of tools as well. You know, so I, think... I agree with you, and I think being pushy is it's good to be pushy about that <laughs> because anyone who looks my fear, and so I, as, as a secondary note to this, my fear is that if someone opens your email or, and, uh, on their phone and they can't read it. Uh, then they may not open the next one, right? Like they might, it just, it just is a deterrent. And a secondary part of that, which is, is sort of a, an extra side to your question, but I think it's an important thing, is what, what, we're, what I'm spending a lot of time being pushy about is how, what does your mobile form look like? 
frankly, how, what does your online giving form look like, and is it in any way usable for a mobile device? Because more often than not, I think we do great school. You know, everyone's coming around to sending emails that, that look good on a mobile device, and their sites look, are, are becoming increasingly more mobile responsive. But and we do a great job and everyone's excited and someone's clicking to make their gift and then they get to the mobile form and it's impossible to use on a mobile device. Yeah. And everything ends there. You know, the entire, all, all the work they've done to get that, build up that engagement and get someone to make their gift and they've persuaded them, it stops there. And so I think really what, what we are going to spend a lot of time as a firm doing and, and what I hope that You know, I think one of the doors this could open up is more location-specific uh, fundraising, where, and, and this could even be the revenge of the QR code, I think, that, you know, it, I don't know what your perspective has been, but it, it, there was a point where it seemed like QR codes were going to be a silver bullet for fundraising. And, and But what nobody had thought about was, you know, whether the page that you took somebody to with your QR code was mobile-friendly. But I can imagine... You know, at, a, at an alumni reception or in a reunion tent, uh, you know, where there's a QR code that that actually does take you to a mobile-friendly site, and all of a sudden now we've thought through from soup to nuts how that would work in a way that I think um, opens up the idea of asking somebody to make a gift right at a moment when they're most likely to agree to make a gift, and you know, rather than being held hostage by when my appeal goes out. You know, now I can pop up at moments when they're more likely to say yes at events and things. And that's where I think mobile friendly opens up that window in a way that I don't think we've been able to think about before. I think that that was the death of the QR code was the problem that we went to a site. You, it was it's so great and so easy. And then you go to a site that then you that you can't read well or you can't give, you know, you, you can't navigate through from your device. But. You know, the devices have really taken huge leaps and bounds, and now, you know, if we can get our sites and our giving forms in particular to look good on a mobile device and be easy to navigate through and simple, then we will be 10 steps ahead. And, to your, and then we can use them in so many different ways, to your point, at events. We can use them in, we can use them on our direct mail pieces. We can use them um, in so many different situations. But the thing of it is, and I feel like I talked about this for a long time, is that if it's easy, if you can, if I can do everything on my phone, if I can go to Amazon and I can buy, uh, you know, a present on my phone in a couple of clicks, then I should be able to give to my alma mater as well in a couple of clicks. And it's, it, there's a lot of resistance to that, but I, at the end of the day, you're losing dollars by not making that form uh, mobile friendly. And it's worth taking the time to do whatever needs to be done 
in the institution to make that change um, because it's going to be something that's increasingly important. And then I also think the other message that needs to be driven home is that once that new form is up, it's, it can't just sit up idle for years and years and years. It's going to need to be updated and refreshed or at least looked at and evaluated every, you know, nine months or so to make sure that it's still conducive and working. I, I was sitting in a restaurant waiting for somebody to have lunch the other day, and while I was waiting, I was able to go onto my phone and book a train ticket in England. While while I'm sitting there having uh, just killing a couple minutes uh, waiting to have lunch, and so we we either get equipped to sort of deal with people in the same way, or you just start to look and be obsolete. It seems to me. I think so, and because what's going to happen is. There are other nonprofits that are, that are going to beat you out in that case. I mean, and I do think that's the case. I think that, it, you know, other nonprofits are very, are getting very savvy with this respect. And if we, if it's not easy to give, you know, to, to your institutional line, it's going to be easy to give to someone else, um, someone else's. They're going to raise more money, not because they have a better case for support, but just because they're present in this environment. And again, the irony, the the irony for a lot of our educational institutions is that they they had a built in relationship with these audiences, but um, but sort of took it for granted because, you know, because they're not in uh, they're not online like they ought to be. I am proud uh, to say that you are a contributor to my next case book uh, on online innovations and annual giving. And, you know, after everything else we've talked about, which has really touched a lot of different places, I, I, I'm a little embarrassed at the simplistic nature of this question. But w- what you talked about in the book really goes back to sort of early email days with just some advice about when to send and, you know, even a little bit about subject lines. You know, for everybody, I'm sure you see this all the time, for everybody who's very equipped to think very dynamically about their web strategy, there's certainly plenty of institutions where it's still a victory just to get an email out uh, to their audience. You know, from a more basic building block level, anything you've learned over the years about timing of emails and uh, any pointers uh, to sort of wrap up our chat with? Sure, absolutely. I, I won't um, give too much away so that uh, people yeah. won't get the book. But uh, yeah. I think, um, you know, I think the key to to your strategy with your, e- with, with, with your email messaging is tracking the results of what you've done. So testing out um, different things and tracking the results. So, so certainly there, there are some best practices with regards to timing and subject lines. And, you know, but with the timing, it's interesting because five, five years ago you would have thought, oh, I'm not going to send anything on the weekend. We're going to send it all during the work week and, you know, we'll, we'll sort of skip the Monday craziness and, and we'll send midweek and we won't send anything on the weekend. But, you know, we've had a lot of success in the last two years trying out some Sunday afternoon times and um, some Saturday times with different institutions. And I think, and we've also had a lot of success trying out different times of the day. I mean, but certainly from a best, best practices standpoint, later in the day, you know, that that sort of end of the work day pickup commute time has, it has always been a tricky time and a dicey time to send. Um, so we, in general, avoid that. But I think what's really important is to 
decide what you're going to test out, whether you're going to test out a certain day of the week or a cer at a certain time, and then track your results, and then test it, you know, do it again and again, and try some different times, and then compare your results over the course of a series to see what may have worked, what didn't work. Um, I also think, and this is sort of a part of thinking about your institution and your audience, consider your audience. We're sending, it, we're sending out an email campaign for a professional school, and we're going to test an early morning send that we haven't, we haven't typically done, like 5 a.m. in the morning, and see for that audience, it's a, you know, a, a law school, you know, that audience is, is probably up a little bit earlier. They're probably, you know, starting their day a little bit sooner. We're going to test that out and see how that does for them. You know, would I recommend that for all of our clients? Not necessarily. So I think, you know, consider your audience, consider who you're, you know, it, it might not be your full, it might maybe a specific segment, consider, you know, what may work for them, because again, it's about thinking, it's about their, the user experience, not about what works for you, um, and schedule, and try different times, schedule a campaign for a Sunday afternoon send, see how it does, schedule something early, for an early morning send, see how that does, um, as far as subject lines, you know, we try in general to do something short, shorter, active, um, you know, you can, to, to grab someone's attention, um, but, but test out different things. We've also personalized subject lines um, with someone's name, and so, so try different things. I mean, clearly the subject line, if you're, if you're sort of skimming through your email, which we know you're, 60% of you are doing it on a mobile device, uh, you know, the subject line and the sender name are the two things that are, that are shouting out at you. So try different things and, and, and you know, recognize that that's the gateway to getting someone to open your email. So um, that subject line is going to be really important. You know, I think even when we were a direct mail focused profession, it, it was still all about testing and counting how many BREs came back into the office. The irony of this, that we have a much richer uh, ability to uh, learn and track and test than we used to have. It's just that for some institutions, they're, they're slow arriving to the party and all the things they could be learning uh, from the things that they do online. You know, from the very beginning, when I first started the company to now, I, that hasn't changed. We have always been really excited about the metrics that we can get online. Um, there's just so much great data from your email campaigns to your websites. You know, we can track so much of your constituents' interaction with your campaigns and their behavior. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be taking advantage of that. Um, you know, we really can get a sense for how long, you know, how many emails are they opening? How many emails in a series have people opened? How many uh, times have they clicked to your website? What, have, what has been the web, the, the, the traffic flow through your website? What pages are they spending the most time on? And then, of course, all, for, with all of this, we can then also look at, you know, from what percentage is looking at that on a mobile device versus on a desktop. Um, and it's, it's really exciting for us because it allows us to, you know, we can take some of this behavioral data and help develop different types of segmentation strategies for, uh, for institutions that they might not have ever thought of before. You know, we can pretty narrowly define a, quote, engaged group of constituents, and you might not have ever thought to, you know, just based on maybe their giving history and some other affinity data points that are in the database, you may have never thought to build a segment like this. But we can look at their interaction with your emails, with with your website, with your, you know, with a, 
during a challenge, and now all of a sudden we have this new segment of constituents that are really active, really engaged, that might really be on the tipping point to giving, that we might, and we may have never known that before, or we may have never known that had we not been able to track the data. Stephanie had one more important point she wanted to make about the importance of good data. The accuracy of your data is increasingly important. Uh, when you send an email, the expectation to your constituent is that the data will be correct. You know, my name is going to be correct, my nickname, or my nickname. Uh, but if, you, if you're mentioning, if you're inserting variable data for my class year or for other things, or for my, my previous gift, I mean, the email and it, it's just more personal in nature. You know, even I think, despite people will say, gosh, we get so much email now, and people know that you merge in data and that it's not personal, that it's, that it's simply a mail merge, it's not a big deal. But I, I tend to disagree with that. When your email still has an aura of being very personal. And so I expect that when my institution emails me that they know who I am and if they're going to reference the, and, and, and that the email will be to some degree personalized. Um, but And certainly if they are going to reference personal details like my previous giving history or the, that, that that stuff is correct. Um, and so, you know, I say that not to overwhelm, you know, not to overwhelm fundraisers and not to overwhelm everyone higher ed or make people nervous, but I just really think it's we really need to take ownership over our data. It's just no longer okay to say we're not going to personalize an email, we're not going to add a salutation, we're not going to we're not going to reference that they are, that they gave and what they gave because you're unsure of the data. You know, we have to figure out how to be sure of the data. And uh, you know, millennials, I think everyone expects that, but certainly your younger uh, you know, certainly your millennials are expecting that, that you know who your email, that, that, that they know, that the institution knows who they're emailing um, and who they're talking to via email. On the flip side, now with electronic communications, I mean, it's easier than ever to update contact information. It's very easy through an online form to collect and gather updated contact information that you never manually have to touch. So there's, you don't have to introduce much, much human error into it. Um, and the great, the great thing about online communications is that people, like your cell phone, you're, they're, not, they're just not changing their email address. So when you collect that person's email address and some of their information uh, online, it's, it, the, the email address isn't going to change. So I think the data piece of it is really, really, really important. Uh, it's going to make uh, all of our online campaigns better. Um, and if, if we can spend time and some resources looking at the database and, and getting that data correct, I, I think it will be hugely, hugely important and make your campaigns that much more successful. Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I really view you as one of the people uh, who kicked in the door on online fundraising. And uh, so thanks for everything that you've done for this profession for low these many years. And thanks for taking the time to chat. Thank you very much for having me.